Well, it's wonderful to see you all here this morning. Uh, we're in this uh, second of this series, Above All Names. So if you're a guest with us, we're delighted that you've joined us. If you're worshiping with us uh, online this morning, we're delighted that you've joined us as well. Now, most of you know that I really like history, and I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, and so uh, I'll make this quick. But to understand a little bit about how these words, these names of the prophesied one, really had power, you got to understand what the first people thought of when they heard this. 700 years before the birth of Christ, how did they understand these words? At one time, our own nation was embroiled in a bitter civil war. Brothers, it was not uncommon for families to be divided and for brothers to be fighting for both the North and the South, sometimes even facing off in battles against one another. 933 B.C., God's nation of Israel divides into North and South. Ten tribes form the northern kingdom with their capital city at Samaria. Two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, formed the southern kingdom, Judah, which by New Testament times was known as Judea, forms, and their capital, of course, is Jerusalem. And for the next 200 years, they are at odds with one another. Families were divided, and oftentimes brothers would be fighting against brothers. The moral and spiritual decline of the Israelites was apparent. Isaiah comes on the scene during the time of the good king Hezekiah, tries to draw the people back. Hezekiah's reforms try to draw the people back, but the people had just, well, they have drifted so much that it didn't seem that no matter what God sent through his prophet and his king made much of a difference. There was hope in the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom had lost all hope. As a matter of fact, the, the Assyrian nation, the strong, violent, awful Assyrians were at the gate of the northern kingdom. And so when we read these words, Isaiah comes on the scene at the time when the Assyrians sweep into the northern kingdom. And the first place they take is that region called Galilee. Galilee is swept away by the Assyrians. Now here's where the hope comes in. Last week, we talked about the expected one and the hope that we have in the expected one. But, but here is where we begin to see the hope that God is not done with the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 9, the, nine, the chapter we're refocusing on, but verse 1, there is hope in this verse. Read these words. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee. I find it incredible that the very first territory to be swept away is Galilee, the very place where 700 years later the Messiah would grow up and spend much of his life. God kept his promise. It takes 700 years, but God kept his promise. His promises are true and sure. Isaiah spells it out. God's deliverance is connected to a child, and that child is the answer to the question of how God would bring light into this time of darkness. The passive verbs at the opening of verse 6 indicate that this son, the son that is to be given would be a special gift from God. Yes, a descendant of David, but so much more. Not just an ordinary descendant. He would be able to do what no mortal could. 
Thus the names found in this verse indicate that the promised son would be, well, nothing short of incredible. I, I want us to learn this verse. If you don't know this verse, by the time we get to Christmas, I want this one just stuck in your hearts. So I'm going to ask you to read it out loud with me. Ch Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We've already heard it in the, in the song this morning. We, we talked about it last week. Let's read it out loud together. You ready? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, normally when I'm studying for, uh, well, just studying in Scripture, I like to read out of several different versions because the variety gives me a, a different perspective and helps me understand it better. But when you come to a familiar passage like that, that, that doesn't always work. <laughs> for instance, here's how it reads in the translation called The Message. For a child has been born for us, the gift of a son for us. He'll take over running the world. His names will be Amazing Counselor, Strong God, Eternal Father, Prince of Wholeness. I don't know about you, that just leaves me flat. I mean, that just, that just doesn't do it. And I think part of the reason for that is I learned this verse in the King James Version as a kid, so nothing sounds quite like it. It's not a lot different than the NIV that we read at first, but there's something beautifully poetic about it. Now, I want you to listen to it carefully because I'm going to ask you a question afterwards. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but there is a, a glaring difference between this and the NIV. Can anybody notice what it is? There's a comma. Yeah, you, you picked up on that. There's a comma between wonderful and counselor. A literal translation would be the wonder of a counselor. This is not so much an adjective. Wonderful is not so much an adjective describing God as a really, really good counselor. Rather, it is a word used to describe the impact created by a supernatural act of God. This, this, is, this is more than just wonderful counselor. I, I think the King James has it right. I think it's divided into two basic names. Now, I know theologians far smarter than I am suggest that it should be understood as one giving supernatural counsel. But I prefer to see it on a grander scale. In other words, his divine nature is, well, incomprehensible to us. Uh, he is a phenomenon beyond human origin or beyond the scope of the human mind. I can't fathom God. Can you? And not only this or that is wonderful in him or about him. The word really means, but he himself is a wonder through and through. So I, I really think this morning we're dealing with two names. Wonder or wonderful and the second is counselor. Counselor denotes the ability to discern and provide counsel for good for God's people. A wise leader surrounds himself or herself with wise counsel. Why? So that you can make the best decisions to lead a nation or to lead a company or even to lead your family. 
But this term, in essence, suggests that there is no need for the Lord to surround himself with counselors. You know why? Because there aren't any equal counselors. He has no peers. The word counselor here means that God gives the greatest of wisdom. No one exceeds or excels or equals him. He is head and shoulders above all the rest. There is none like him when it comes to wisdom. Now, now, now this, is, this is powerful stuff. His name, Jesus, it will be called Wonderful Counselor. Uh, John chapter 14 gives us a, a, a bit of an insight here. 14 verse 15 says, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, we know that's a promise of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit would come and live inside of us during our time in this world. But the key word to me in this passage of Scripture, folks, is the word another. And I want to ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Well, the another is the Holy Spirit. So who's the first counselor? Well, it's Jesus. He is our advocate. He is the one who gives us this great wisdom. Now, another, another original word that's translated here, counselor, is the word parakletos, and it means one who gives legal assistance. Uh, another word, we would, we would be more comfortable with the word an attorney, okay? Uh, in his gospel account, whenever John uses the term of Jesus instead of the Holy Spirit, he indicates that Jesus is our advocate, our attorney who speaks to the Father in our defense, now, we hire lawyers to do what we cannot do ourselves, and that is to guide us through the legalities of our court system. Jesus does what we cannot do for ourselves, and that is he intercedes for us before God and his throne for the things that we cannot do. He is our advocate. He is our heavenly attorney interceding before God, the great judge. Now, at the time that Isaiah writes these words of promise and hope, those who first heard his message were anything but hopeful. All they could focus on was this huge, wicked army at the gate, that ready to sweep in and take their land. Uh, the oppression that they knew would soon surround them. The fact that they were hungry and had very little to eat. The fact that they had felt abandoned by God. The fact that they felt God was silent when they prayed to him. And so Isaiah gives them these words. These names are important. They were then, they are now. Why? Well, in the hopeless moments of life, in the moments where you may feel God is silent to your prayers, when you may feel that God has abandoned you, he hasn't, but you may feel that way. When you feel that hopelessness, when you are plagued by fear or overwhelmed with stress and anxiety and worry, you need to remember these names because these names remind us of our victory. When everything else around us seems hopeless, when everything else around us feels like defeat, these names remind us of our victory. Let me see if I can explain it this morning, just, just for a few minutes. Author Max Lucado writes this. He says, fear doesn't want you to make the journey to the mountain. If he can rattle you enough, fear will persuade you to take your eyes off the peaks and settle for the dull existence in the flatlands. Boy, I love seeing the mountains. There's something majestic about the mountains. 
The flatlands, they have their own beauty, but they're kind of dull in comparison. Does fear hold you captive in the dull existence of the flatlands of life? You see, fears like worry and anxiety, those, those are general fears. Phobias like the fear of heights or small cramped places are often irrational but no less immobilizing. Then there are those fears which demoralize us, the fear of embarrassment, the fear of disappointment, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of ridicule, and the list goes on. Fear is like a dense fog. Now, according to, this is, this is hard for me to grasp, but according to our nation's Bureau of Standards, a dense fog covering seven city blocks to a depth of 100 feet contains less than one glass of water. Isn't that amazing? So little substance. And yet a dense fog obscures our vision, blocks out the light, makes us feel helplessly lost. Fear is like that. It clouds our perspective and it declares defeat. It doesn't so much bring us to our knees in prayer, it brings us to our knees in defeat. Are you a worrier this morning? Does fear and worry seem to grip your heart? Do you pace the floor and chew your nails? Do you ever feel like you uh, have a squadron of butterflies doing aerobatics in your stomach? Uh, do you break out in a cold sweat and feel nauseous? It has been said, many of our worries are like small trees that temporarily cast long shadows. And I've learned that most of our worries are, are like that. They're not nearly as daunting as we believe. They're simply long shadows of small things. But worry seems to just come naturally to most of us. I worry. I suspect most of you worry. Shouldn't. But just, there's something about living in a broken world that only makes worry that much more necessary in our minds. I like how Dr. Robert Elliott manages his stress and worry with these two simple rules. Rule number one, don't sweat the small stuff. Number two, it's all small stuff. <laughs> that really is good advice. You know, th that's smart wisdom. I mean, there are some things in life you can control and others you can't. So don't worry about what's in your power to control. Just take the leadership, take charge, and control it. And on the other hand, the things that you can't control, worry isn't going to make it any better except to give you a headache or heartache. Nevertheless, worry seems to dominate our waking moments. Anxiety fuels our pessimism. We fret and we stew over the things we can't change but wish we could. The American Institute on Stress offers this observation. This is no surprise to any of us here. We know this. There are numerous emotional and physical disorders that have been linked to stress, including depression, anxiety, heart attacks, stroke, hypertension, immune system disorders, and a host of viral linked illnesses. In addition, stress can have direct effects on the skin. Did you know that? Sometimes rashes, hives, and dermatitis are the result of stress. Stress affects the gastrointestinal system. It contributes to insomnia and degenerative neurological disorders like Parkinson's disease. In fact, it's hard to think of any disease in which stress cannot play an aggravating role or any part of the body that is not affected by worry and stress. Wow. The things that we think are so necessary in handling the issues of the moment of our day is really doing far more harm 
than it is helpful to any degree. In a recent survey of subscribers to Self Magazine, respondents were asked, what's the last thing you do before you go to sleep? I don't know what the last thing is you do before you go to sleep, but out of the survey, one in five, 20% of the respondents said they worry about the day. The day they just had, the day they're going to have when they wake up. Oh, people, if that describes you, and in a crowd like this, that's got to describe some of you. If the last thing you think of is you're worried about the day, how is that worry going to change anything? I mean, we worry about everything from the economy to the environment and everything in between, but it doesn't get us anywhere. The personnel manager of a large corporation was continually plagued over employee problems. One night he was perusing the newspaper and he read an article on how worry and tension drive some people to drugs. He looked over at his wife and he said, you know what, I can understand that. I'd probably be on drugs myself if I wasn't taking tranquilizers. Now, part of the problem, and, and I'm not down on, on medications by any stretch of the imagination. I think that's a, a gift from God, actually. But we look to those kinds of things to solve all of our problems when much of our problems can be solved by the one whose name is Wonderful Counselor. Everyone handles stress and worry in different ways. With some, just a quick look at their faces tells you everything you need to know about their worry. Some people respond to stress and worry in different ways. Some sleep more. Others can't sleep at all, except during sermons. Some stop eating. Others go on a feeding frenzy. Some quietly withdraw. Others lash out in anger. Some sit and do nothing. Others become compulsively active. And for many, Christmas time is filled with stress and worry. I love this picture because it just captures everything. <laughs> Well, that's how some people get through the holidays, that's for sure. <laughs> now, it is true. Some people use worry and stress to get sympathy or pity. And it's true. Some use it as an escape to avoid being responsible for the choices, the bad choices that they've made. And most, I think, believe that outside pressures are to be blamed for our worry. But, but can I tell you that's not true either? The circumstances of our lives do not cause worry. They only reveal our tendency to worry. Worry, anxiety, and fear are an issue of the mind and the soul. So it's nothing outside that forces you to worry. It just reveals your tendency, your desire, your want to, to worry. Unchecked, our fears, our stresses, our anxieties, our worries will poison our lives. This uh, blue flower that you're going to see on the screen is called wolfsbane. It is a beautiful flower, but it's one of the deadliest. Beautiful to look at. It has enough toxin to paralyze an animal as large as a whale. Back in 2014, a gardener died five days after just handling it carelessly. Now, while there is significant poison in the flower, the highest concentration of the poison is found in the unseen part of it, the roots. It is the root of worry and fear that is so toxic to our lives. 
This mental poison stands in contrast to godly trust. When we're always afraid, when we're always stressed, when we're always worried, what does it say about our relationship to the Lord? Rick Warren writes, he said, worry is the warning light that God is really not first in my life at this particular moment. Oswald Chambers made this observation, all worry is caused by calculating without God. So when we worry, when we're stressed, when we're anxious, what does that say about our relationship to God? So here we are, 2,700 years removed from Isaiah's promise. What do these words mean when our lives are dominated by fear, worry, stress, and anxiety? Do these names mean anything to us today? Yes, they are as valuable to us today as they were when Isaiah set them to parchment. Very simply, these names remind us that he can handle our fears and our anxieties and our worries and give us victory. So how do I find encouragement in his role as counselor? Well, let me just highlight this for a couple minutes here. Take a look at Psalm 16, verses 7 and 8. It says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, growing up, children are receptive to their parents' counsel. When kids become teenagers and college students, their parents get really dumb really fast. And then when kids get past that, they get a career, they get married, they get on the job, they do, parents gain their intelligence back and, and our sons and daughters are willing to listen to us again. Now, through the whole growing up experience, parents are willing to share their wisdom. They're willing to share their encouragement. Why, they'll even talk to you at night. If you come in late at night and they're asleep, they'll get up and talk. If you want to talk, a parent is willing to talk. And I can tell you this, parents have more wisdom than their children. Now, kids, I'm amazed at sometimes the God-given wisdom they have. But, but because parents have had so much experience at any stage, they have more to offer. That, that, that's our God. God is that way. God is a father who is always willing to share his wisdom and his counsel if we will avail ourselves to it, if we will listen, if we will realize that he has so much to offer that we cannot offer ourselves. And he's willing to do it at night, it says. And if he's going to stay up all night, and he does, because the Bible says God does not sleep, you can talk to him at any time of the day or the night and know that he is willing to share his wisdom. And notice where he is. He's at my right hand. Ever hear the, the phrase, he's my right hand man? What does that mean? Well, it means I depend on that person's counsel probably more than anyone else. And in the scene of a courtroom, where is the attorney seated? Right next to the defendant. You see, this, this picture, this, this word counselor, this parakletos, gives you the image of somebody who comes alongside of, the right side of, to give counsel and wisdom and direct one's path to keep us where we need to be going. So when you are struggling, when you are, are down, when you are defeated, know that you're not alone. The counselor is at your right hand day and night. And, and why, why should you go to bed, worry about tomorrow? I mean, he's going to be up all night anyway. Let him worry about the day. You sleep well because you're not going to be able to do anything to prevent it anyway. 
And if his role as counselor doesn't fill you with confidence, remember that he is also a wonder through and through, that he is absolutely wonderful, and everything about him draws you to this spirit of wonder. Why do you think science keeps discovering all these incredible things about nature? I think God sits in heaven and just smiles every time we come up with something new because God knows that if we really look at the surroundings about at his creation, we'll be drawn to him. You just can't help but be drawn to God in amazement. Wow, how wonderful is that? I love these things that we learn. Can I just give you a couple this morning to help you remember the wonder of our God? Just recently. Just recently, two independent studies. These scientists didn't know the other ones were doing studies. They were 11,000 miles apart doing a study, and they were studying spiders. And what they learned was that some species of the spider use bits of bark, leaves, moss, and even the corpses of insects to create a decoy in the middle of the web. What they do is they create a spider that looks like them. Even the body shape looks like them. The spiders have eight legs in the center of the web. The only thing is that they are, well, ten times bigger than the actual spider itself. What they've learned is that the spider creates this decoy in the web so that predators will stay away from the web. When a predator comes looking for the tiny spider, they see this big spider. And are you ready for this? The spider, when he sees a predator coming, shakes the web and makes the decoy move. Some spiders even pluck certain web cords like a puppeteer or a marionette making the decoy move. I'm just utterly amazed at that. How big is a spider's brain anyway? Just stop and think, only God could instill that kind of ability in a tiny spider to protect it. And then, and then in, in this picture of camouflage, you see, that's that decoy, that cam- In this picture of God's camouflage for the tiniest of his creation, there is the monarch butterfly and the milkweed plant. Milkweed plant. The monarch caterpillar eats only from the milkweed plants, which is a poisonous plant to the insect world and, and sometimes to smaller critters. However, the caterpillar thrives on the milkweed plant. It's the only thing it eats. And it's what gives the butterfly its orange coloring and makes it poisonous to the birds that want to use it for lunch. Now, it won't kill a bird. But if a bird eats a monarch butterfly, it gets really, really sick. And and the bird learns pretty quick. You don't eat those orange flying things. And by the way, the monarch is not the only caterpillar that eats the milkweed pod. There are a couple beetles and a, and a moth caterpillar that eat from it, and they all have that orange coloring. The orange coloring then becomes a natural camouflage. It doesn't take long for God's creation to learn. You don't eat it if it's orange. Okay? Now let me show you a picture. What is that? Monarch butterfly? Yeah, you're wrong. It's a viceroy butterfly. How do you know the difference? Well, you pretty much have to be an entomologist to know the difference. There are a few of the lines of the wings, the black markings that are different between a monarch and a viceroy. A viceroy is non-poisonous. But most birds stay away from the viceroy. Why? Because he's camouflaged to look like a monarch. 
Is our God wonderful or what? Even when you look at the tiniest of God's creation, you see this marvelous camouflage that God has built in to not only protect the plants, but to protect the insects. And I'm here to tell you this morning, if the Father cares so incredibly for the plants and the insects of his creation, how much more is he capable of taking away your fear and your stress and your anxiety if you'll let him? The Bible reminds us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power so when fear like a frightful fog envelops your life remember that it's all mist and no substance and when your stomach is filled with those butterflies of worry you think of the viceroy butterfly because god has placed in it the capacity to hide as a reflection of the monarch see here's the deal when you look like the father when you're a reflection of the father when you follow his counsel, when you trust this God who is a wonder through and through, he'll take care of you in the hopeless, dark moments of life. Let go of your worry. Let go of your fears. Cling to the wonderful counselor. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.